Welcome to Season 4 of Writers' Festival Radio, broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, Canada's festival of ideas since 1997. Thank you for supporting authors and booksellers and each other. On this episode of Writers' Festival Radio, we're bringing you a conversation between critic Stephen W. Beattie and Sharon English, whose short fiction has been long-listed for the Giller Prize and the Relit Award. Originally from London, Ontario, Sharon lived for many years in Toronto and now makes her home in Nova Scotia. Her latest publication is Night in the World. Catherine Bush says, Night in the World is a splendid and searing novel. Pressed up against the tremors of our times, I read it compulsively, astonished by the way Sharon English turns Toronto inside out, making the city a wild and watery landscape, bringing the beyond the human close. With dexterous language and explosive love, English creates complex characters struggling to find their truths in a fraught world ultimately hopeful and vital. The novel offers us everything we need from fiction right now. We'll begin with a taste of the prose, followed by their conversation. So this uh, excerpt is from early on in the novel, and we are focusing on the character of Justin. He's in his 50s. He's a successful entrepreneur who owns two restaurants on Toronto's Queen Street West, one the iconic restaurant Ace, and another named Leverage that is new and definitely not thriving. And he is married to Naomi. They are having troubles. She's gone away right now when this takes place. And they have one daughter named Gwen. It's calmer in the house with Naomi gone. After Gwyn goes to school, Justin sits in the basement office and works for hours, though mostly he does bullshit. Phone calls, banking, and the ceaseless data rain of emails, that's the bullshit. Work, the stuff that earns actual money, has become ever more difficult to reach. Getting to work now first requires this maddening traverse through the tripwire, bureaucratic, and electronic perimeter ever thickening around him. He's spent by it. The hours of tap-tapping on the keyboard or waiting on hold or navigating websites and phone menus drained. He needs a break before he actually goes to ACE to work, breaks he doesn't have time to take. He addresses a health code violation given an error to leverage and still not removed from the system. He follows up the city's inspection of ACE, which resulted in the need to re-modify its bathrooms again to meet accessibility and safety codes. Apparently, the last contractor didn't know or understand the latest codes, and Justin can only be so pissed about this because it's just not fair. The codes are forever complexifying, and he can see a future where every contractor must employ a bylaw official on site, where engineering schools offer adjunct degrees in bylaw law. And all this stuff is thinky-dinky detail. It doesn't approach the tasks required to run his businesses, the ordering and staffing, the menu planning. And if only the bullshit ended here. But it's in his home and family life, too. You can't just send your kid to school anymore. There are parent-teacher meetings to attend, emails and e-newsletters, and even texts to absorb, events, interviews, consultations, volunteer time, 
And this is only grade four for fuck's sake, not bilateral diplomacy. There's also the parenting issues Naomi wants them to keep abreast of, articles and links she forwards so he can thoughtfully weigh these strategies and threats and worry how to protect Gwyn best and plan her future to avoid the many, many pitfalls that lurk, including his own selfish mistakes. Around noon, he drives to Ace. Xanax stabilizes the ride. In his office, he listens to music and reviews accounts. The kitchen roof gets patched while leverage seeps blood. He comes home, spends time with his daughter, takes the dog out and goes to bed. A few hours later, he's awake and marking fresh snow as he walks the quiet streets of Babby Point with Reg, Mercedes and Lexus. Lexus and Mercedes, you can only sell your soul, not buy it. Thanks so much for that reading from Night in the World, Sharon English. I have to tell you what a pleasure it is uh, to be speaking with you. I have been a huge fan of your writing since uh, reading the short stories in Uncomfortably Numb and uh, Zero Gravity. And it's so great to have a new book from you. So uh, thank, thank you. Thank you, for... thank you no, Stephen. Not, <laughs> not at all. Thank you for agreeing to, uh, to do this for the Ottawa Writers Festival podcast. Um, I guess the first place I'd like to start because I'm such a fan of your short fiction is uh, with the new book, which is a novel. And uh, when I heard that you had a new book coming out, I was very excited. I was also intrigued to find out that you had left behind the short form um, mm -hmm. because the, the stories in those first two books were just incredible. Now, Uncomfortably Numb, your first book, which I believe came out in 2002, is a collection of linked stories. So that sort of straddles the line. I mean, it does have novelistic aspects to it. But what was it that, that made you decide that you wanted to jump feet first into the novel form with this book? First and foremost, naivete. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it would be not too difficult <laughs> to transition from being a story writer to a novelist. And uh, first I learned over a period of years that I had to write very differently as a novelist than a story writer. Because I'd written collections of, uh, well, as you said, the Uncomfortably Numb is linked stories with the same characters, but Zero Gravity is thematically linked. I thought it would be fairly easy to move to a novel if I approached it in the same way as a series of interconnected stories. So this novel is structured from three points of view. It's a, a, what they call an ensemble novel. Uh, I realized over years that that was not the case, <laughs> um, but uh, that it would be easy. But to address your question of why, um, I always felt that the themes I was trying to address were a little constrained by short stories because they tended to be very scopic. And um, I really felt that at the end of Zero Gravity that, that, in, that the novel might be a better vehicle for addressing these larger cultural issues that I was trying to speak to. And uh, so I just thought it would give me more scope. And that was uh, possibly true. <laughs> I guess it depends on how successful one feels the novel is at addressing the things I'm trying to address. Um, 
but it 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 certainly was a, a rather harrowing, but ultimately um, edu- educating educational experience in um, in in the difference between these two forms, and it surprised me a great deal how different they are: the short short story writing versus novel. What what was most surprising for you about the the difficulties of writing the novel form? Yeah, the 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 difficulty of the overarching uh, coherence and plot and plot to so to try and really make these stories entwined, but to build momentum from beginning to, through middle to end. And in a story, that's you don't have you you've got that that issue on a much smaller scale. As well, I found that just the sheer labor of writing a novel to be very different than stories because they're discrete. I could write a story in a couple of months or draft it at least, draft it in a couple of months or a month and then work on it and finish it and um, put it behind and then move on to the next one. Whereas the novel was is like this endless hike up a mountain. Uh, that, and then you just, I kept starting over and over and over and couldn't get it right. And finally saw a friend who actually is a a climber said, uh, you just have to keep going, like stop restarting. You can't, you can do that with story writing. You got to just keep going till you get to the end and then start again (laughs) at the beginning and do that about 10 more times. Right. I mean, you must have felt something similar with um, uh, the characters in Uncomfortably Numb um, with Jermaine and and Bono and and Jermaine's parents and, you know, all of those characters. They keep returning and evolving throughout the the course of of that book. Yes. Um, But was but was was this um, sort of that to the nth degree? Was it was it that much? Yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And um, I, I had I uh, somewhere back in the years that I was writing this book because it took me about a decade or so to write it. I did think, why did why didn't I just do the link short stories? Why why am I here? But I there I was. So um, yeah. The uh, the fascinating thing about Night in the World, though, it is a novel that clocks in at more than 350 pages um, with this um, tripartite uh, structure. Um, so as you, as you mentioned, you've got, um, it's an ensemble novel, so you've got three different um, focuses, um, although it's, it's all told in the third person. Um, but what interests me is the compression in terms of language and approach, because there doesn't seem to be a lot of, if any, wasted verbiage here. Like you're mm-hmm. very, very um, intense in the way you use language and the way you compress mm-hmm. language. Um, mm-hmm. Did you find that that was more difficult in the novel form than in a short story where compression is sort of yeah. the name of the game? Absolutely. And uh, that that container that a short story offers is so useful and I've never appreciated it more than when I was (laughs) midway through this book and it was over 600 pages long at one point because I mean that's that's the strength and the weakness of the novel is the strength is or maybe not strength and weakness but opportunity and pitfall let's put it that way so the opportunity of the novel is the bigger canvas 
than a short story. And then the pitfall is you just get lost and it becomes this big shy beast. And uh, yeah, I, I had to, I had to take it down from that grand expansiveness that it had grown into. And that took that, that was the revising and rewriting and revising and rewriting, because as you said, I do, I love language that's very compressed and um, the, the, I, I really had to wrestle with getting it there. Um, I had to have the, the story, the plot, et cetera, completely done and then go back and rewrite it basically to, to compress it right. and really uh, hone it to where I was satisfied with how it sounds. And yeah. I, since you mentioned the story and the plot, um, we, we might take this opportunity to get into sort of the, the meat of the book. Um, as you mentioned off the top, this, there are three uh, main characters. Justin, um, who is the central character in the reading that you did, who owns two restaurants, one of which is a Toronto institution and one of which is not doing well. Mm -hmm. um, he lives on Babby Point, which for people who are unfamiliar with the West End of Toronto is a very old money rich enclave um, that actually has stone porticos. It's, it's not quite a gated community, but you have to pass through this quasi gate to get to it. Um, mm -hmm. So he's, he's very privileged and well off. His brother, Oliver, is... Uh, I won't say a failed writer, but he's put his writing and journalism career behind him, and he works uh, now at a gym. Um, he is not wealthy or well-off, although uh, their mother has just died, and he has uh, inherited some money with which he hopes to restore um, their old house on Toronto Island. And then the third character, Gabe, is a master's student pursuing a thesis studying moths. And I find these three characters fascinating. These stories, I don't think it spoils anything in terms of the plot to, to um, let people know that these stories do intersect um, throughout the novel. Uh, but I'm wondering how you came up with these three characters um, and decided that these were the characters that you wanted to drive your book. Was it was it character driven from the beginning? Did you come up with the plot first? Did you have a setting, a theme? How, like, how did the how did the mm. book come about in that sense? Yeah, great question. Thanks, Stephen. Um, so I always start with place with where where I'm writing about and I knew I wanted to write about Toronto where I've lived for decades and I knew I wanted to write about our relationship with land with the natural world in this book very directly or address that as the big theme and yes it's my writing is character driven so the characters came next the plot came way later because <laughs> uh i really write intuitively like through the characters and through the place and then the plot emerges i i um i came up with the these the justin and oliver first as the two brothers who have their story is one in family story is one of separation, right? They've, they've just, they're 10 years apart. They live very differently. They have different values at, or so they think they've never been close or haven't in a long time. And uh, I, I wanted the story about how they, how, how that story of separation might change for these two middle-aged men who really don't have much use for each other, but they're brothers. 
Um, so I the story the story in my head began to evolve with this um, the mother's passing and how that throws things into upheaval for them and and forces them to come together and then what might happen when they're forced to come together over her estate the funeral etc and of course estates are all tied up in possessions and our relationship to places and that kind of thing. Uh, the, the character of Gabe um, came into the book as um, a love interest. Uh, I, I don't want to give spoilers, but so uh, I want I wanted a, a love I wanted a love interest, but I also wanted as the story of of as the themes began to evolve, I wanted a character who was kind of in a very different place and. I guess thematically, and uh, I did want a female character in this in this mix of the two brothers. It just felt right. I can't quite tell you where her character came from, <laughs> um, but uh, I did I did see the necessity of of um, because the book is about how these three characters come to have a profound connection with the natural world. Um, which is kind of surprising for at least Justin. Um, it I wanted one character who kind of started in a different place in that journey um, because really it's like three views of this journey from um, journey into say reconnection. And right. I wanted a character who starts in a different place, which Gabe does. Um, right. Right. It's it's interesting that you you talk about wanting to focus on the natural world because this is very specifically and importantly set in Toronto, which people consider an urban mm. environment. But uh, Justin, for example, has uh, an encounter in the second half of the book with the sort of hidden nooks and crannies in the city that mm -hmm. are really that the, that are nature um, mm -hmm. driven, uh, the Humber River, um, various um, valleys and reservoirs in the city that not mm -hmm. a lot of people think about, but that mm -hmm. are there. It put me in mind of um, Elisa York's book, Fauna, which does mm -hmm. um, the same sort of thing with the, with those hidden um, natural areas in Toronto. And there's one thing that I didn't know. There's a fact in the book that I didn't know about Toronto Island that you mentioned that it used to be connected to the mainland by a peninsula that was washed right. out in, in the 18th. How did you find that out? Uh, I found that out through research. There was a lot of research put into this novel. <laughs> and, uh, and I've also spent a lot of time on Toronto Island right. and talked talk to <laughs> islanders. And <clears throat> there's a wonderful book called, uh, I think it's called Toronto. It's by Sally. Hold on. It's in my, uh, it's right here. It's a wonderful book called Toronto, or More Than an Island, A History of Toronto Island by Sally Gibson, who was a right. longtime Toronto Islander and writer. And uh, the story of the island is in that book, how it was a peninsula, uh, it was connected by a peninsula to the city. You can also look at old maps of Toronto from colonial days, and you'll see the, the, it's fascinating to look at them because the whole uh, waterfront area is completely different yeah. than it is now. And the island is different too, because it's been reshaped by um, settlement over the years. Yeah. yeah. I was astounded to find that out because I lived in Toronto for most of my life and I had <laughs> no idea that this was, uh, this was the case. The other thing that astounded me is the idea that this peninsula was washed out in a storm that also took out a hotel mm -hmm. and that, that the, the residents of the Toronto Island, the people who built the hotel 
had been warned that that was this was a dangerous place to build this property mm-hmm. did it anyway and then you flash forward to all of those scenes in the book which are, are based on an actual incident a few years ago uh, where the waters um, it rained very heavily through the spring and the summer and the waters in Lake Ontario rose to the point that it looked like some of the houses in on the islands were going to be washed out because of the rising mm-hmm. tides so my question of course at that point is do we ever learn <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> yeah, um, Am- Amatov Ghosh, the, write, the uh, writer, novelist Amatov Ghosh, has a, a wonderful book called um, Climate Change and the Unthinkable, where he talks about novels addressing or not, not addressing ecological crisis over the years. And one of the things that one of the stories he tells in that book is about um, I think it's in uh, Japan, where um, on the coast, written into stone are these ancient warnings, basically saying don't build below this point because of floods and of course people have built below that point and that's the question he asks like do we learn (laughs) um the ancestors knew this and uh yeah uh no i i would say that we we haven't learned and um We've got a we've got a few more lessons uh, to learn here around uh, how to live how to live with our world, which is also changing, and um, of course this this flooding issue with Toronto Island is is very uh, is is an ongoing um, great concern and uh, of course a metaphor for uh, ecological change in in the world. You're listening to Writers Festival Radio. As always, I want to thank you for listening and for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin Street, and wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. If you enjoy the podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. We can't do this without your support. And now, back to the conversation. Certainly, um, climate change and uh, ecological sustainability is a pervasive theme throughout Night mm-hmm. of the World, um, mm-hmm. and it's 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 manifested in many ways. Most specifically, it's manifested with through Gabe, uh, who is involved in this um, thesis project studying moths. And some of the facts about moths in the book are are also f- amazing to me. First of all, that there are so many moth varieties mm-hmm. second of all that there are so many that are indigenous to southern ontario because i didn't realize that that it was so you know so rich and so wealthy what prompted you to use that as games <laughs> and how much research did you have to do about moths are you now an expert on moths i'm not nowhere near an expert uh, i knew nothing about moths when i started the book uh, the moths came into the book for mysterious reasons but uh, I can't quite say how, but I do know that um, I wanted um, I wanted a sense of uh, the non uh, something to kind of focus our attention on the non-human world in terms of animals or creatures. And 
darkness and night is was there as a theme for the book from the beginning because we are in you know dark times but in dark times there is also new possibility i think and uh, a chance to see things differently uh so one of the things that began to as i just sort of followed this pathway of like moths. Hey, I'll check moths out. Maybe that's, you know, as a writer, I, I, I didn't know where I was going. <laughs> so I started learning about moths and, and I underwent my own sort of transformation of realizing just as you said, Stephen, that, that the night, which seems more or less empty um, is full of all these beings and moths are just one kind of being that are in the night. And, um, and they're extraordinarily beautiful. I mean, most of us just know moths through, you know, having your sweater eaten by a moth (laughs) or your jar of rice has moths in it or, you know, and uh, so it, it, I wanted my own process of discovery of this this these this this beautiful um abundant species uh life creature that we live with that is hidden to just uh, i wanted the reader to experience that and i think that that's for me that's kind of a metaphor of the natural world itself that it's you know you mentioned the nooks and crannies in toronto um the not the beautiful places that are they are nooks and crannies because we've made them nooks and crannies but that's actually that's the world right right? and it's beautiful and abundant and all around us and uh so that yeah and them and the moths of course are just we're are so are such fascinating creatures because of the whole cocooning and their, their radical transformation that they undergo from caterpillars to moths and what that suggests about how we evolve, um, how all of us evolve. And yes, I had to do an enormous amount of research and I drew on uh, experts advice, especially um, uh, the Toronto Entomologist Association and uh, one particular uh, uh, mothman named David Beadle, whose books and field trips were really important to me. And I, I participated in a number of uh, moth field trips that were just yeah. so pleasurable and <laughs> so much fun. <laughs> the uh, the other thing that, that intrigues me about the use of the moths in the book is one of the moths that gave spies on her excursions after dark is has a kind of bioluminescence and, and she's mystified by this moth. It's not something she's ever seen before. It's not something that she's familiar with. It's not mm-hmm. something that she's studied and so on and so forth. Um, I, I think of you when I think of your writing as a realist, I think of you in the, in the, the mm-hmm. realist mode, but then there are stories and I'm thinking of uh, Clear Blue from Uncomfortably Numb um, in which uh, the protagonist thinks she sees a UFO. I'm thinking mm-hmm. of uh, the story in um, Zero Gravity where the protagonist feels that he's becoming invisible uh, to mm-hmm. himself, although nobody else seems to notice this problem. But there mm-hmm. are these mysterious elements that work their way into your otherwise realistic mm-hmm. writing. How, how important is that element of mystery to you as a writer? Uh, it's 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 becoming more and more important because uh, I see that um, realism 
um, can often be a kind of ideologically driven or belief system driven way of framing our experience of living. And uh, I would like to, I, I, I've been really interested in um, shaking that up uh, and expanding our sense of what is, uh, how would I put it? of allowing, allowing into realism all the experiences that perhaps have been shoved, shoved to the side. So whether that's um, spiritual experience that, that is often left out of realistic novels or experiences of the mysterious and the transcendent, um, and especially uh, the thing with, uh, with realism is uh, it tends to be very human centric, obviously human, human, human drama driven, but then where does that, how, how can that make room for all the other beings we share this world with was, was my question. And so um, once, once I felt that it was important for the reader to have a sense of the, the non-humans as having some kind of voice, agency, consciousness, intention, their own lives, and putting that into the novel, I, I had to kind of expand the bounds of realism a bit there. Right. That's for this book. Um, but I think for, 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 you know, you mentioned Clear Blue and Uncomfortably Numb and, and um, that story about the protagonist seeing the UFO or thinking she sees a UFO. I think it's very, very important to recognize that, that as I said, that realism is a kind of somewhat artificial frame and it's not set and it it's very porous or it can be, if right. we think of it that way, it's kind of consensual reality. What we decide today is that's what we agree on. That's consensual reality, but there's a many, many things that, that are there at the periphery, that experiences that we have that are, um, that I, I think are, are worthwhile bringing into realism, at least for me as a writer. Well, and certainly that's profound in, in Justin's uh, character arc throughout the story. Um, I'm, I'm also cognizant of the way you play off um, the natural world with the institutional or bureaucratic world uh, mm. that humans have created, whether it's um, the thesis committee at the university or with Justin. There's a wonderful scene where he goes to the Justice of the Peace to try and get some of his traffic tickets uh, yeah. reversed or, or um, expunged from his record. And he, he comes up against this incredibly frustrating bureaucracy. It's easy to see why Justin decides um, to escape, number one, into drugs and alcohol, and then literally by running away. And I noticed that a lot of your characters um, throughout the, your writing um, mm -hmm. tend to respond to difficulties by running away, whether it's, you know, the, the brother in that UFO story running off to, to um, uh, university in Vancouver, or um, mm -hmm. Kathy in the first story in Zero Gravity, who leaves Toronto to go to Vancouver, mm -hmm. um, you know, to mm -hmm. escape, and so on and so forth. Do you think that our bureaucratic, institutional, soulless, urban society sort of necessitates that kind of escape, or if not necessitates it, at least encourages it, that, that yeah. escape to, to just get away from everything? Yeah, uh, that is exactly it. And in this kind of, you just put it beautifully, Stephen, uh, bureaucratic, soulless, 24-7 culture, uh, it, it 
we are we are all under such uh, well it it creates an ex, um a way of life that is um causes us to feel like we're breaking down i think and uh so we need to escape that and um there's the escape takes many forms uh, whether it's through the you know the, the pleasures i put that in air quotes pleasures of drugs and alcohol or some other addiction or um television or actual you know relocating trying to find somewhere better i think that that there's two things going on it's there there's the the that the the civilization that we're in with those with that that's the sort of systemic um tension that we're living in which came out in the reading i just did uh, i was trying to capture some of that with justin's daily life that we're all familiar with um there's also the deeper um cultural history of of the frontier mentality of like well let's just go somewhere else where it's going to be better or there's opportunity or let's just kind of run away um or press press forward um and so i think i think there's the the cultures um creates the desire to escape but then there's also just this precedent culturally of doing that as in, more opportunistically but also for a sense of just well, I don't like it here. So can I get somewhere else where I will feel okay? Will I feel okay if I go out west? And and as the the the, the character in the first story of Zero Gravity hopes, right? It'll be better out west. My life will be better, and well, our life is different out west. <laughs> yeah, of course, these things prove to be a miracle in a lot of cases. But the, I think the, I guess the alternative to um, running away the way Justin does is confronting the ills of the world in the way that Oliver does in, in yeah. his decision to actually take some positive action to try to um, yeah. make effect change where the environment is concerned and where uh, corporate greed is concerned. Do you think it's more difficult in 2022 to do that than it has been in the past? Hmm. Um, hmm. I think it can be more difficult in 2022 for sure because it feels everything feels more overwhelmingly dire. Uh like the global situation is more dire. Um but at the same time I think that because it's more dire um there's a kind of um stripping away of a sense of uh um what what is important for living what what do i really need to focus on and uh, as we were talking before the recording just about you know for example changes that people have gone through in the pandemic um i think for many people there's been that sense of of stripping away of um the bullshit or some of the bullshit and and getting down to well what really matters what what should i really be focused on in life i'm not saying that's true for everybody but i think i think that the the more dire the situation becomes the more there's the pressure to on a more positive note to to really sort of commit to to right being to, to um, change 
And that's that's not easy to uh, to see, you know, because it's a, a very individual thing for for each. That's why I wanted this book in three voices and three perspectives. Like each person's facing a different kind of challenge in what needs to be let go of in their life, in their beliefs, in their um, how they've been doing things, what needs to change. It's it's different for each character, but I think uh, yeah, I would say it's more it's more difficult and more necessary, and, and but and I think the very difficulty in pushing us to make those changes can be helpful. Right. Um, <laughs> There's one point near the end of the book where Gabe is out on one of her um, moth finding mm. excursions, and she comments that humanity is a disgrace. In, in particular, where it comes to the way we interact with the natural environment. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a little bit harsh, but I mean, I can see where <laughs> it's coming from. But at the same time, one of the uh, optimistic threads in the book is this idea that humans can change themselves and their environment in the same way that cicadas um, shed their exoskeletons. Yeah. There's a, there's a, a point in where, where, um, you talk about the the, the miracle of, of what a cicada goes through. Um, yeah. Is is that yeah. is that important to you? This belief that that although we are facing all sorts of crises on multiple fronts, social, ecological, geopolitical, we have it within ourselves to change our. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I don't think that we would see we would be able to hold a vision of the possibility of change if that if it wasn't possible. <laughs> like I, I don't I don't think it, I think the fact that we can imagine that means that it is possible. And we can also look to all kinds of examples in history and in our past and see pe- examples of people making those kinds of radical changes. And I think also that What's helpful is that um, really these changes uh, to me are about a kind of homecoming to uh, to our place in the world, um, uh, living in the world in a way that is going to actually feel a lot better. <laughs> and um, and uh, it's it's uh, it's it's coming home to. Uh, I guess I would say the beautiful world that's waiting there for us. So it's, it's not, it's not like, Oh, we have to make these difficult changes and life's going to be so, so brutal and hard. And um, it's, it's, we have to give up all these things. It's like, well, you're letting go things in order to embrace another another way of living in this world, which would be in one of mutual relationship with the natural world, for example, um, living in a way that's healthy for, for all life. So, uh, and that's just to speak of the natural world. I think there's this, um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll just go back to, yes. <laughs> I am, I am optimistic. I am optimistic. Uh, I am always optimistic about people's ability to change and about the, um, the, 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 um, I guess I don't want to say reward of changing, but that these changes will be really good to make. <laughs> this is about living in a way that's actually going to make all of us feel a lot better. Um, and, uh, um, 
Yeah. So I think, I think time, that helps. <laughs> at the same time, I mean, there's, there's so much institutional pushback um, from stakeholders. You talk about mm -hmm. the oil industry in the book, um, very mm -hmm. wealthy um, uh, stakeholders yeah. who, who do stand to lose um, if yeah. the changes that we need to make are actually affected. And there's a scene where Oliver goes to try to pitch an environmental documentary to a CBC producer and the producer says well you know i'd love to be able to do this yeah. but i don't think that you know institutionally i don't think there's going to be um uptake for it and you know this is this i've seen this as a problem in journalism i've seen this as a problem um you know um in certainly in politics um where there's there's not political will to to do the things that we need to yeah. do that, to you know save our environment to save our world and so on and so forth yeah what do you think the place of art and fiction is in that regard do you think it can yeah. help push people forward that way yeah uh, I sure hope so. Uh, I think I think that. Um, so I'll just speak. Well, art, art and fiction. Yeah. Um, as we all know, like we understand our our world through narratives and through uh, the stories that we tell about what what the nature of reality is, what's important, what what are we doing here, um, how do we understand our lives. Um, I think I think storytelling, fiction, art are extremely important right now for both um, for for reflecting to people uh, what's untenable about the way we're living in this world, and for um, trying to show uh, or trying to create other stories that um, take us into. Uh, a different a different reality um one that would be not just i don't think sustainable is really it um but where we where humans are where it's not where humans are not at the center of the story but we're living more integrated with the rest of the planet which is how life actually exists um living in alignment with the rest of the world um and um Hmm, sorry, I forgot the the. I think I I not quite circled back to your initial question. Not at all. Um, not can at you all. remind me of it? <laughs> is, is is what is the purpose of fiction? Or is ah, thank you capable of of affecting cultural change? On yeah. Yeah. So thank you, thank you, Steve. Yeah. So so one of the things say that fiction can do or art is to um, show. Uh, show that different, um, say, instead of a, for storytelling, instead of a human-centric story, to show uh, a story where humans are not at the center, but one of a number of beings in the story, which is what I'm trying to do with the moths or with the natural world in this book. So it's really kind of um, changing the frame for how we understand reality, how we see ourselves in relationship to each other and the natural world. Um, and I think that's tremendously important right now. Uh, how, how much change will that affect? I can't predict, I can't prophesize, but I do know that uh, storytelling and art in that sense, I think has never been more important um, than at this very dire point in history where we see where we've come following the story of progress, of separation from the natural world, of dominance over the natural world. 
um, these these stories that guide our culture that are have led to such suffering um, on a human scale and global scale. Yeah. Well, Sharon, thank you so much for that. Uh, I, I really appreciate that. And I, I want to, to underscore the fact that uh, we've been talking about some very heavy subjects here, but Night in the World is by no means a heavy book. It's hugely entertaining. Parts of it are very funny. Uh, the three yeah. characters are incredibly human and flawed and recognizable. And I think it's just a, a, a terrific piece of work. And I hope that the people who are listening to this podcast seek it out because uh, I think it's it's really a worthwhile novel and it's great to have you back on the scene on the literary scene <laughs> such a long hiatus Sharon English thank you so much for this conversation it's been a pure delight thank you so much Stephen my pleasure that was Stephen Beatty in conversation with Sharon English her novel Night in the World is available from Perfect Books and other independent booksellers from coast to coast to coast Thanks to all our patrons, volunteers, and donors. And thanks to the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Ottawa Public Library, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubé. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening. (music) 